Welcome to HJ Talks About Charities, a dedicated podcast series from our charities team at Hugh James. In this podcast, we talk about topical issues and the latest developments affecting charitable and not-for-profit organisations to help provide some practical guidance to ensure they run effectively. We are lawyers, so we will touch on the legal standpoints surrounding the topics, but don't worry, we'll keep the legalese to a minimum. In recent weeks and months, the media has been consumed with discussion of discrimination, ranging from the negative press coverage of the Duchess of Sussex to the controversial comments of an audience member at BBC's Question Time, branding the actor Lawrence Fox a white privileged male. Issues of equal treatment are never far from the headlines. But what language is correct? Who decides what's acceptable and what's not? Have employees become too wary of discussing issues such as race, health, gender, for fear of reprisals? And what implications does this have for relationships in the workplace? In today's podcast, I'm joined by Kate Walsh, Associate Solicitor from our Employment and HR Services team, as well as Ruth Coombs, Head of Wales of the Equality and Human Rights Commission. Attempting to condense what's a very controversial and complex area of the law into a small podcast segment is something of a challenge, so it makes sense to try and narrow this down by looking at the Question Time clash in a bit more detail. In January this year, an audience member of BBC's Question Time made a comment in relation to the Duchess of Sussex. The woman said, The problem we've got with this is that Meghan has agreed to be Harry's wife, and the press have torn her to pieces. Let's be really clear about what this is. Let's call it by its name. It's racism. She's a black woman, and she has been torn to pieces. In response, the actor Lawrence Fox denied this was the case, calling Britain the most tolerant and lovely country in Europe, and adding, it's so easy to throw the card of racism at everybody, and it's really starting to get boring now. The audience member replied, What worries me about your comment is, you are a white privileged male who has no experience in this. At which point Lawrence responded, saying, I can't help what I am, I was born like this, it's an immutable characteristic, so to call me white privileged male is to be racist, you're being racist. So Kate, turning to you first, whilst this is a conversation that took place as part of a panel debate in Question Time on the BBC, it's quite plausible that conversations like this could be going on on tea points, uh, office floors, shop floors, uh, all around the country. So if you had a client who picked up the phone to you and said, look, we've had this grievance in, this is supposedly what's been said by one person to another whilst they were making a cup of tea, got a little bit antagonistic, clearly. What kind of steps would you be taking? What questions would you be asking to ascertain whether this could really snowball into something bigger? Yeah, I think in this area of law, it's, um, context is everything. So I think we would need to know more about who actually made the comments. Were they in a position of seniority compared to the, the person that they made the comments to? Um, is there a history of making these sorts of comments in the workplace from this individual? Um, and then we just need to know from the uh, individual who's raised the grievance, whether they would, you know, are they happy for it to be dealt with informally, um, but possibly because they feel quite aggrieved by the situation, it's likely that it might be um, a formal grievance, in which case we'd want to know from the client, um, you know, the step that they've already taken to, to investigate what has happened, and um, if they feel that, you know, what outcomes that they actually want from from the grievance? Is it the case that they can can continue working with this individual? So we'd need to know about their policies as well, and whether this sort of behaviour is um, if there's anything in the policy that you know, guides the employer as to how they should deal with this situation. Um, but we would we would certainly be um, need to find more information about the actual the context and in order to advise. So what sort of context would you be looking for that might take it one way or another? 
Yeah, so uh, seniority, so it is, is something that's relevant as well in terms of when we're looking at if this is a potential harassment um, issue, is whether the, the individual that made the comment, are they perhaps in a position of seniority? Is there a history of making these types of comments? Want to know more about the individual as well in terms of how did they perceive that comment and what's the effect that that has had on them? Um, that is also framed in the legislation as well, is, is whether the individual is being hypersensitive or you know, it was reasonable for them, to, you know, for that comment to have that effect on them. So, yeah, we certainly need to know more about both individuals concerned who've, who the one making the comment and obviously the recipient of, of that comment as well. So when it comes to the legal test that you'd be looking to apply, is it is it taken as read how that person was made to feel or is there an element of reasonableness that's applied to that? So if they say, I felt that was a racist comment, um, is that just taken as fact or is that something that's questioned and is that ever subject to any sort of wider reasonableness test? Yeah, so it's um, in terms of uh, if they were to bring a harassment claim, for example, um, that the the allegation, oh, the comment, sorry, um, was harassment related to someone's race. Um, there's a two sort of stage test under um, the Equality Act, and it's whether the individual who made that comment, they, they made that comment um, with the purpose to violate the other person's dignity. Um, if, if they can't prove that, it's then whether the, um, the comment has the effect. So it might not be the individual's purpose to, to violate someone's dignity, but the effect of the comment was to create um, a degrading, intimidating, hostile environment for the individual. Um, and when we look at that, that second sort of limb, you have to think about, um, or a tribunal would take into consideration whether it was reasonable for the uh, comment to have that effect. And it's, again, it's another two-limbed uh, test, whether the individual taken into consideration their sort of subjective view of the comment then whether overall it was reasonable for it to have that effect. So that kind of injects some um, standard that if someone is hypersensitive, the tribunal can say, well, even though you know it did have that effect, it wasn't reasonable for the comment to have that effect on you. So even if the person didn't intend it to that, have that effect, there's, there's um, still a potential claim, I suppose, further down the line that could end up in an employment tribunal. Yes, yes. So it's all about the environment that it created and, and taking an objective view of that, of the environment um, and whether that falls within the, the legislative framework as well. Typical lawyer advice then. It's <laughs> going to be, if in doubt, don't say it. <laughs> yes. yes. Yeah, I mean, hopefully, you know, hopefully getting to the point where clients are making sure that staff have regular training so you know these policies shouldn't be something that's just dusted off and you know nobody is familiar with them people should have regular training on the policies they know what's in the policies um hopefully as i said they have training you know and, and there are things like support networks or networking groups for um individuals within the workplace so they feel that level of support it shouldn't just be something that um they're paying lip service to it should be something that's it's part of a daily, weekly um, practice that, you know, the employer is communicating to its staff. And presumably if this um, grievance ended up being upheld, then it could actually subsequently result in some disciplinary action as well under that policy, would it? 
Yeah, possibly. So, I mean, if if it was, um, if they felt that contravene perhaps a um, bullying and harassment policy or, you know, equality and diversity policy. So it could, you know, sort of straddle quite a few policies. But um, yes, if they felt that, you know, this conduct, especially if it was part perhaps of um, repeated conduct, of course, one-off incidents as well can amount to harassment. But if the, you know, after the investigation, they feel that, you know, they do want to take disciplinary action, um, yeah, it could result in, in, you know, any sort of sanctions from warnings or recommendations for training or possibly dismissal um, following the investigation. And I presume that probably depends on, as you said, the context being everything when it comes to sanction as well, that if this is, you know, the end of a lot of um, warnings, for example, then it might actually result in a dismissal. Whereas if this is a first offence, then perhaps you might look at it slightly differently. Would that be the kind of thing that you would be taking into account? Yes, yeah. So there was, um, in terms of obviously not strictly the same facts in terms of comments about being a white privileged male, but we have seen cases in, and there was a case before the Employment Appeal Tribunal, where um, an individual made gender-specific terms in the workplace, not directed at someone specifically, but made comments along the lines of um, girly chat and I think it was power-dressing females. Um, and someone brought a claim on that basis. There, there were other facts um, in terms of offensive cartoons and things like that that were shared. Um, but the Employment Appeal Tribunal found that it didn't create this, um, what they call a prescribed environment in terms of the intimidating, degrading, hostile environment. It did not create that for the claimant. Um, and the factors that they uh, took into consideration is that um, context is all important. And you have to think about, um, obviously, who made the, the comments in terms of whether they were in a position of seniority um, the timing of any objection by the individual who perhaps then went on to raise the grievance. Did they raise an objection? Um, timing is something to take into consideration, but it's not, com- you know, it's not conclusive. And again, just um, the issue of the environment. It's a state of affairs, so it may be created by an incident, but the effects are of longer duration. So a state of affairs is obviously in a constant state of flux. It could change all the time. Um, so yes very very fact specific um, in this area but uh, it's helpful to have some guidance I suppose but that is a an older case it's from 2011 so it might be decided differently if it was to come before a tribunal today. Well as you say largely it's the case law that gives us the guidance but that's a natural time to bring in uh, Ruth from the Equality and Human Rights Commission as I know you've issued recently um, some technical guidance um, when it comes to uh, sexual harassment in the workplace. It'd be interesting to know Ruth how much do you actually encounter issues in the workplace when it comes to the cases that are referred to you? Is it the workplace that is really um, still very much the place where these kinds of issues are occurring or is it actually other contexts? No, we do, we do find that um, a, a lot of the cases or cases for consideration that come through or the, or the concerns that people range or, or the complaints are workplace-based. Um, they're still quite predominantly in that space. Um, I think that's probably because for a lot of people, they spend quite a lot of their, their day actually at work. Um, what we have found in uh, our sexual harassment and harassment at work technical guidance, which we published in January of this year, is that for a range of people um, with protected characteristics, there are still higher levels of 
harassment um, and unwanted uh, comments levelled against them than we would want to have in, in, in our workplaces in, in Wales in the 21st century. We know that where workplaces are diverse, where staff are valued, people are more productive um, and everybody has a much better experience at work. So if you are in an environment where, even if it's low level, what we might have considered banter um, a few years ago, that can still be harassment if it's perceived by the person as such. And it doesn't have to be intentional, uh, intentional. it just has to be unwanted. So there's quite a lot of um, statistics and evidence around people from um, certain uh, ethnic minority um, backgrounds for people from the LGBT communities, disabled people, um, women, and some age discrimination at both ends, actually, um, that is still happening at work that is unwanted and needs to be looked at. And what we would say absolutely echo um, what Kate has said around training, around having policies and procedures, but it's about culture. It's great, you can have the you can have policies, you can have procedures, but if you haven't got a shift in the culture, it's not going to get any better. Um, and what we, we would want to see is that ongoing um, training and guidance for people in the policies, but also in, in behaviours and cultures. And one of the things that, that can be done that's, that's um, quite easy to do is to look at flashcards, for example. Would you consider this acceptable workplace banter? Not acceptable, where would you rank it? Mm. And looking at that in the context of the Equality Act. And that's quite a good way of getting people to talk. And what we want is we want people to talk because we want workplaces to be open. That's really important. Am I right? Sorry, am I right? There's been some research that actually people are so scared of talking about these issues now that actually that's almost a risk in itself, that it's sort of driving these kind of concerns underground and actually openness is, is a much better tactic. Absolutely. It, it's really important to, to be open because we all know that if we don't talk about stuff, that stuff grows. Mm. Um, and when we talk about it and we shine a spotlight on it, um, we can put things right. And that might be a really simple putting things right um, somebody says something at a meeting um, in the heat of the moment and almost wants it to wants to reel it back in but they can't that shows awareness that shows some self-awareness but somebody else might say something similar but if they haven't been trained or it hasn't been explained or they haven't been told because it might not it might just simply be a tell that's actually not acceptable oh I didn't know that now I know that, I won't do that again. I will change, I'll change my behaviour. Mm. And it's about being able to have a supportive environment where people can challenge each other, but also having mechanisms in place so that people feel really vulnerable, people feel harassed, people feel afraid, that they've got a, a method of, of reporting and recording that, and that actually being something that feels safe and being in a safe space to do it. One of the things that we would say is for organisations to think about 
Could there be an anonymous way of raising a concern, perhaps through an online portal? Mm. If you've got, you know, obviously for very small organisations that might not work, but for larger organisations um, and for public sector organisations that might be a good way, a good way forward, so that people feel that they can have their voice heard. Mm. It's very. It, this is all about power imbalance, and we want to try and level up. That, that imbalance so that people feel empowered and enabled to be able to, to speak up. And sometimes that means maybe doing it anonymously online. Um, I feel very privileged. We've just refreshed and um, rebooted our anti-bullying policy in the workplace. And I've been asked to be the um, the champion for that across the organisation, which I feel is, is really important. Um, it's something that's very close to me. So if you do things like that and you get people who feel that they can champion that and then ripple that out so you get departmental champions and not necessarily you know, senior staff, senior staff championing at that level but also at all levels so that all people feel that they're enabled to do it so that your people who've not been in work very long can feel that they can be empowered that actually that wasn't okay for me mm. because if you're in your first six months of employment and you know one of one of somebody who's got a lot senior than you says something to you that you think I'm not okay with that where do you take it and the other thing that we really must be aware of is if for example Kate and I have got a relationship where we can talk about a lot of stuff quite openly and we're okay with that because we've kind of contracted that. We can't do that if that's going to have an impact on somebody else. Mm. You've got to be really careful that what's okay has got to be okay for somebody that might hear it. Anyone in earshot, yeah. 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 So that does really, really you know, limit, I suppose, some people. It's interesting the point you make about senior staff as well, because I think whilst they might feel comfortable with certain people in a meeting room saying something in particular, they've also got to think that they are a role model as well, aren't they? So whilst those people might not be offended by it, they are actually seeing that person's behaviour as being the kind of behaviour that can then be passed on throughout the organisation. And that's how the culture is actually going to get formed, isn't it? Absolutely. Absolutely. You have to walk your vision. You absolutely have to do do that walking the talk. It's really important that... um, that staff at all levels um, model that behaviour. Um, and it's important that people feel that they can, in an appropriate way, call out behaviour that they feel falls short of the organisational values. So if you're an organisation that wants to know where to make a start in improving, I you know look at your values. Do, do you articulate your values? Mm. Does everybody model that? Who are the good Who are the good role models that you can use as champions, in in, in at all levels of the organisation, and start using them to try and say, well, actually, no, that isn't that is not okay at all, or is that is that okay? Do we need to be resilient? Because we also need to be resilient as individuals and resilient as organisations. And we need to carry that resilience in, into our wider lives because, you know, life can be, can be tricky 
Um, for people with different protected characteristics, it can be a much more negative experience than others. Um, our research shows that, that, that people with particularly protected characteristics are experiencing a worse experience. Our recent um, inquiry into racial harassment um, in universities, for example, showed some really good, clear um, examples of good practice, but they were far outweighed by practices that fall short of where we would want our universities to be and where our universities want to be. Mm. So it is important that we have these conversations, that we feel that we can speak and that we can unpick them and also have some benchmarks for what is okay and what's not okay, which is, I think, where our technical guidance can Mm. be really helpful. It's got some clear um, examples in there of where the lines have been drawn through case law and it also shows where we need to keep this conversation alive because there are still areas where people are are unclear mm. and it's in its grey matter and we mustn't we mustn't get away from it doesn't have to be intended but if the recipient perceives it as harassment that person needs support and they need it there and then. It's really important to support, not just in terms of the policy, but what do you do in the now, as well as what do you do moving forward to improve practice and put into place the steps that you do. That person needs support. I think that's a really interesting point, actually, because you know, putting employment lawyer hat on, I think there's partially that when someone's made that kind of claim... You know, our first thought would be, is there a good claim or not? And, and take it on that way. You're not really looking at it from a support perspective, whereas actually, you know, you could end up avoiding an employment tribunal just if the right support's put in place, couldn't you, really? If someone feels that active steps have been taken where they've probably been listened to um, and it shouldn't happen again because certain um, protections have been put in place, you don't need to end up in an employment tribunal then, do you? So I, I think there's there's a, a lesson for everyone there, isn't there, that actually you can um, respond to these things in, in a number of different ways. And, and being litigious or presuming someone is going to be litigious is not necessarily the, the right way forward. No, and for a lot of people, that's the, the, the thought of going through um, a legal process is really frightening. And they, they don't want to do it. It's also, it can be an expensive process. Mm. And some people would be, the barrier could be financial. But far more often it's, I don't think I'm going to believe, you know, am I going to be believed? Um, am I going to have to relive this experience? Because that's the other thing that happens when you go through any form of process is, is that you kind of relive that experience. So you need to be supported in there. And that's where having things like um, mental health first aiders at work in the workforce alongside physical first aiders can be really helpful or your um, employment assistance programs where you can you know where you can go to get help now because that's something that 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 you need so I think it's really important that when organizations are looking at that bigger picture about putting things into place it has to be done in the context of what does the person need now what might they need later on what does the person who has 
unintentionally said the whatever it is or done mm. the whatever it is, what support do they need? Because they would probably need support as well. Mm. Um, you know, if ever anybody has said something that they wish that they could reel in, they, they need support too. Um, and that's that, that and them having that support doesn't diminish the per, the recipient. It's honouring the recipient and making sure you honour what they what they've heard, what they've experienced, but also acknowledging that there is something going on for that other person as well, and that they might need support in being able to come to terms with why that's not okay and what 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 not okay feels like so when would organizations engage with the equality and human rights commission if they had for example an issue like this or perhaps repeated issues is that something that they might approach you over or do you get approached by individuals how does it work yes we've got um, a range a range of powers we have our strategic plan with a core aim around um, strong equality and human rights law that protect people and we have um, strategic goals that sit alongside those um, and we can take enforcement action to challenge people who breach the law. Uh, we can support people to bring discrimination cases where this might have a wider impact, what we call strategic cases. Um, in our Section 28 power, we can give legal assistance. Um, we can provide funding or we can provide lawyer support. We can also intervene in cases um, on a on a technical matter where we might not feel it's appropriate or, or even the people bringing it don't feel it's appropriate for us to take everything on but could you just intervene in, in this bit um, we can support judicial reviews we can also make an application for injunction to prevent an unlawful act our powers are quite wide ranging we tend to look at um, cases where we think that we could clarify um, the law or if we think that something has go, is a novel point that hasn't been tested. So those are the areas that we would tend to, to, to get involved. And we would certainly encourage people, um, you know, people who, who listen to this, who might have clients coming to them and they think, well, actually, this might be a new area. This might be something that... Get in, get in touch with us. We have a, a robust internal process about how we allocate... Um, assistance or not and we give feedback into into how we do that and we have been um quite successful in in a number of the the the, the matters that we've brought across across the piece but you know particularly in in the employment arena and am I right that there are certain positive action measures that can be taken? So where, for example, um, what on the face of it looked like a discriminatory recruitment advert, for example, you know, is it right that actually there might be an exception um, for that kind of discrimination where perhaps there's an underrepresented group in, in a particular... There is. This is, this is a really interesting area because um, positive action is lawful, positive discrimination is not lawful. Right. <laughs> so um, you need to look at, the. there can be some some exemptions um, in some in, in, uh, employed roles, for example, um, if you are working in a, for example, a residential domestic abuse environment, it might be that if you're working with male victims of domestic abuse, there might be an exemption so that a, 
a worker might be required to be male in in that environment and that would be a that would be okay more broadly um for organizations that uh, that that look at their their workforce data and they identify gaps in their data so for example um people from ethnic minority backgrounds are not being promoted in proportionately compared with white colleagues you can put programs into place that might be around shadowing mentoring training um to develop those those workers to give them this a, a, a step up so that they are more able to compete on a level level playing field and that's positive action um so when we we talk about for example wanting to see more um apprenticeships started by disabled people more apprenticeships started by people from some ethnic minority backgrounds you can take positive action steps to enable them to take those opportunities alongside other people but there is a point at which there's a red line you can't you can't mm. go across yeah. it's interesting because i remember in the papers not that long ago there was um, a legacy that was left to i think it was a private school mm. um where it had been worded in what was felt to be a discriminatory mm. way um, and I think there was some controversy over whether it could be accepted I think they decided not to accept it mm. in the end I, I'd have to check but it was something that we thought we might well have a sort of podcast too so it's very useful to have covered these discrimination issues in this podcast and then revisit with perhaps one of our legacy professionals to talk about whether or not you can leave that kind of, of legacy as perhaps a, a positive action measure rather than positive discrimination now we know that's that's not allowed um, no that, that's really really useful well thank you both very much for for joining us today I think it's actually a huge issue that we've we've managed to actually cover a huge amount of it so um so that's really really useful and thank you very much for your time both Kate uh, and Ruth if you'd like to take part in the conversation suggest a topic or need some further guidance for your organization please get in touch at charities at hjtalks.co.uk for more information on Hugh James and the services we offer, visit hughjames.com or check us out on Twitter at Hugh James Legal.